Welcome to the Precision Guided Podcast, the official podcast of the Georgetown Security Studies Review, where we cover all things national security, military, foreign policy, and history. Thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Sean Rosker. Today's guest is Nathaniel Raymond, on to talk about the plight of Ukrainian children currently being held as political pawns by Russia amid the war in Ukraine. Nathaniel Raymond is Executive Director of the Humanitarian Research Lab at the Yale School of Public Health and a lecturer in the Department of Epidemiology of Microbial Diseases. He was formerly a lecturer of global affairs at the Jackson School for Global Affairs from 2018 to 2022. His research interests focus on the health implications of forced displacement, methodologies for the assessment of large-scale disasters, including pandemics, and the human rights and human security implications of information communication technologies for vulnerable populations, particularly in the context of armed conflict. Today's episode is of special importance to myself and Iko Sujihiro, who co-produced it with me. And we hope that it raises the awareness of our audience and contributes in some small way to ending the plight of Ukraine's lost children and their families. Imagine a mother of six pacing around the basement of her home, or more likely, a cold industrial or clinical facility repurposed for refugees, anxious and distressed. She cannot stop walking around, fidgeting her hands, stroking her hair, wondering where her children have been taken, whether she's ever going to hear from them or see their faces again. Faces she has known since their earliest moments. Now picture those faces. 6,000 of them. Each a child that is currently being held as political bargaining chips and subjected to political indoctrination and military training. Clueless as to why they are being re-educated in a new language and culture and being placed into unfamiliar homes with strangers not knowing if they will ever see their families again. This is the experience and reality for thousands of parents and children at this very moment. As you will hear today, since the beginning of the war in Ukraine, Russia has systematically stolen at least 6,000 Ukrainian children and thus far refused to return them. On March 17th, the International Criminal Court issued an arrest warrant for Vladimir Putin and the Russian Commissioner for Children's Rights, Maria Lvova Belova, for the war crime of unlawful deportation of children. The nature of the war makes it difficult to identify and track their children's whereabouts, and parents face staggering challenges in trying to reclaim them. At the Precision Guided Podcast, we focus on all things national security But one important element of this that often gets lost is the human element. At the core of security lies people's lives and safety. The stories of the children you will hear about are human security main manifest. We hope that this episode encourages listeners to think about what can be done as security practitioners and as global citizens to better focus on the human element 
to spur action that will lead to the return of Ukrainian children and prevent humanitarian war crimes from happening in the future. Executive Director Raymond, thank you for being with us today. It's a pleasure to be here. So when this episode airs, we will have introduced you and your background up top. But before we dive into the substance of your lab's report on Russia's systematic program for the re-education and adoption of Ukraine's children, I'd like you to just uh, briefly introduce the Humanitarian Research Lab at Yale. Tell us about the kind of work your lab does and the relationship between it and the conflict observatory with whom this report was published. The Yale School of Public Health Humanitarian Research Lab exists for one primary purpose, which is to develop and test methods for assessing population health through public health science in uh, situations of mass atrocities, uh, conflict-related impacts on health, and natural disasters. We seek to do that uh, in ways that utilize uh, new uh, sources of data. Uh, and we also seek to do that in a way that protects populations from potential secondary effects and harm from those methods. So ethics is at the center of what we do, both in terms of research ethics, humanitarian ethics, and comportment with international humanitarian law and the core humanitarian principles. And is the Conflict Observatory uh, part of Yale specifically, or is it kind of like a separate entity with whom you guys partnered uh, on this report specifically? We are a partner in the State Department's uh, Conflict Observatory program, which is uh, supported by the Bureau of Conflict Stabilization Operations at the U.S. Department of State. Other members of the Conflict Observatory include the Smithsonian, uh, Planscape AI, and ESRI. The uh, goal of the Conflict Observatory is currently to monitor alleged violations of international humanitarian human rights law in Ukraine. Uh, in the future, hopefully, Conflict Observatory will also uh, document uh, alleged violations of international law and threats to human security in other contexts as well. Now, with regard to the report itself, as I was reading the executive summary, uh, I was astounded at the scale of this operation, and it really painted uh, a quite vivid picture for me of the breadth and truly systematic nature of the Russian effort. And I'd like to paint that picture for our audience as well. So can you start by giving us the high-level summary of your team's findings? Uh, what do we know about how many children have thus far been relocated? Uh, where are they being taken? And what is happening to them afterwards? The uh, report demonstrated really for the first time that since the start of Russia's uh, illegal invasion of Ukraine in 2022, at least 6,000 children by uh, our calculations uh, have been moved to re-education camps at some point during the past year inside Russia or territory occupied by Russia, including Crimea. We know based on the Ukrainian government's numbers that were released uh, in two tranches after the report came out that initially they said 
16,000 children had been uh, deported uh, and or transferred uh, to Russia. Now that number has been updated to 19,000. We know that our 6,000 number and the Ukrainian number are both uh, woefully low, uh, likely compared to the actual reality. What we also were able to determine is that at least 43 facilities are involved in this network, and it is truly a network system of facilities that stretches over 3,500 to almost 3,900 miles from the Black Sea to the Pacific coast, including Siberia and uh, the area known as Magadan that is closer to Alaska and Japan than it is to Moscow, let alone Ukraine. What we also found is that this is a whole of government effort and Russia is engaged at the federal level from the Kremlin, which we can talk more about in detail, uh, but also critically in this program, the regional uh, governors and administrative levels all the way down to mayors are critical to this program. One way that regional and municipal authorities are important is that this program really relies on a sort of twisted version of the American Sister Cities program. Uh, and it's referred to with the Russian word patronage, where specific communities in Russia are financially sponsoring the transfer of children. It is important to note that when we talk about the children's issue, there are four groups of children, and this is really critical for people to understand. Group one are children that had been in Ukrainian state institutions that were captured by Russia in the initial invasion. Uh, the Russians refer to them as the evacuees. We believe that probably the majority of the Ukrainian number is really based on that evacuee population. The second group are kids primarily from Luhansk and Donetsk in the Donbass region who have been moved into a temporary, but in some cases their returns have been suspended, program of Russian cultural education referred to as Russification that uses uh, summer camps, um, what the Ukrainians call a vacation trap, to have moved these children away from the front line of fighting. And in many cases, they have not come back. About 10% of the facilities we've identified have not come back. The third group are those that may have been separated from their parents in the process of filtration, such as that which was going on around Mariupol uh, in Donetsk after the fall of Mariupol to Russia. And the fourth group are children who may have been picked up by Russia's forces in the course of combat operations, separate from being in institutional homes run by the Ukrainians. And so it's really important for people to understand that there's four groups. Now, that said, underneath international law, what has happened to each of those four groups for some similar reasons between the groups and for some different reasons in certain cases can constitute a war crime and in some cases a crime against humanity. And that was the basis of the International Criminal Court's uh, decision to charge the war crimes of forced deportation and transfer. That's great, because I did want to uh, probe these, these categories more, and you kind of uh, proactively answered that for me. But I was going to kind of ask about 
your team's methodology here and how you determined the distinctions of these children, these categorizations here on a case-by-case basis. How did you guys go about doing such? Well, it's important to take a step back and identify the data sources that were involved in this report. And from that, look at the methodologies that were used uh, across the data sources. The primary source of data for this report, it is important to state, especially given the amount of uh, misinformation and disinformation that is occurring online, were the statements of Russia's officials themselves, including Vladimir Putin and Maria Lvova Belova, the individuals who were charged in uh, arrest warrants um, by the International Criminal Court. And what really, I think, was the, the data source breakthrough for us by about October of last year is understanding that the local officials, those regional governors and municipal mayors, who I mentioned previously, were promoting the specific transfer events, largely buses, but also uh, planes and trains, where the children had been moved into Russia. And so it w- what we did is basically captured from VK, a Russian social media platform, and from Telegram, the statements and documentation of the local officials uh, really trumpeting their uh, involvement and the use of their municipal and regional resources in those transfers. That was the breakthrough. And what we had, though many people have been reporting on the kids issue before our report, what we did, which was unique, is take those uh, statements by Russian officials, aggregate them, and then be able to delineate and disambiguate to prevent redundancy on each of those transfers so we were not double counting kids. The next thing we did is remove from those posts and put them in a database geolocations of both 41 camps. And this is a a moment to pause here. We think the actual number is at least double that in terms of facilities. And so everyone's shocked by the 40 one and 43 numbers, um, but we know, and we have under investigation now, almost double that number of facilities. So we know that's an undercount. And the 41 facilities, we were able to geolocate and confirm their locations with satellite imagery collection of commercial satellite imagery data. The two cases of facilities that appear to be involved in holding children who are awaiting adoption. And the kids who go into the adoption program are mostly from that evacuee group, though there's some who had been transferred to the re-education camps in at least one case um, who moved into fostering or adoption. Those two facilities, uh, one is a psychiatric hospital and the other is what the Russians call a family center that is in Moscow. And we were able to, um, in many cases, have five points of validation and open source data, and then confirming the geolocations through remote sensing and GIS methods. And that's really the heart of of the method here. And we did that, A, because it was the most available means to do it, but we also did it that way for another reason, which is that we had a unique opportunity to really present evidence that was based on the statements of the alleged perpetrators themselves. Uh, And so for those 
who are trying to a deny that this is happening or b deny that this is a crime well president putin himself has not only admitted to it in his january 1st speech to russia uh, his new year's day speech he also after the report came out confirmed the uh, military training element of some of these camps specifically camp in chechnya and said they would expand it by 2000 russian and ukrainian children so pretty much uh, the facts are undeniable. And you've spoken to just the sheer vastness of this network of different facilities, some being proximate to the conflict, some far removed as Siberia, as you mentioned, uh, that make up this relocation and re-education apparatus. And you've gotten into it a little bit here, but I'm wondering, uh, can you kind of elaborate more about the nature of these facilities? You mentioned that you believe that there are double, at least, uh, total number uh, that you've been able to confirm and document in this report. And then perhaps dive into what are some of the things that uh, children are being exposed to and subjected at these various facilities. You mentioned uh, political re-education and military training, for instance. In at least two cases, military training is occurring. Uh, in the case of one facility in Crimea and then the previously mentioned facility in Chechnya, which is called Mountain Key. In other cases, such as a camp called Teddy Bear, uh, that's the actual Russian name of the camp, we see that they are engaged in Russian history lessons, including uh, lessons about Russian military history and site visits to battlefields or monuments um, or to universities. And we also see that they are learning Russian patriotic songs uh, since the primary source of data here is the statements of the Russians themselves, we do not have an ability to know more, including any potential uh, reports of abuses as it relates to the treatment of the children at those camps. Now, since some of the children have returned, a relatively small amount, around three to 400 children, some of the returnees have alleged that there was physical abuse um, at the camps. Uh, right now, you know, you have to look at our report as a snapshot in time that is reliant on the statements of Russian officials. It will really require a forensically regimented program of interviews and evidence collection with the kids who are released to figure out more about the conditions of these camps. I want to state very clearly here, for some who are trying to defend Russia online, they say, oh, they're getting music lessons, or they're going to computer camp. From a legal perspective, in terms of the Geneva Conventions, and, and this is something I want to talk about in detail here, in terms of the Geneva Conventions, the Geneva Conventions, uh, in terms of whether this is a war crime, do not base that war crime's determination on the conditions of confinement of the children. Uh, they could be receiving caviar uh, on a daily basis and uh, having the best time, and that does not legally relate to whether or not it's a war crime. The, the war crime is based on four obligations of the state party to the Geneva Convention. And those four obligations are to first register all children that they come in contact with as part of the conflict and taken to their custody. Uh, they have not done that in Russia. The second is to allow 
those children to call home and to be in contact with the government of their home country. That has not happened. They have restricted communications access for these children from what we have been able to determine. The third is those children should have access to the International Committee of the Red Cross and to the United Nations. That has not happened. And fourth and finally, those children never should have been moved into Russia. There's this constant refrain that the Russians are uh, moving those kids from harm's way. Okay, fantastic, but that's a war crime if you do not move them after an emergent period of evacuation of immediate combat operations to a third-party neutral country. That has not happened. And so the war crime here is not based on the conditions. It's based on the act of deportation and then the element of transfer, which is distinct from deportation, which is the attempt to adopt these children and make them Russian legally. I see. And thank you for clarifying the inextricable link there between Russian actions and the plain violation of international law here, irregardless of you know specific conditions that kids may ex- be experiencing at these camps. What does your report find with regard to government orchestration? It's literally titled Russia's Systematic Program, which would obviously imply a methodical arrangement. But what were you able to uncover about how the central government specifically orchestrates and supports this program? And how is it structured and coordinated? And can you also at the same time elaborate on the regional patronage system that you mentioned earlier? So we identify in the report 12 officials by name. We have a total of 90 under investigation. Focusing on the command graph we have in the report, uh, at the top of the chain command are two individuals, Obviously, President Putin, who has formally and publicly sanctioned this program and has done three important things as it relates to policy to make this program possible, which makes it, by the very nature of those three actions, a systematic state-ordered policy. One is removing restrictions on adoption of Ukrainian children by Russia. They literally changed the law after the invasion. The second is evidence that there is federal funding for this program, and that goes to the role of the office of Maria Lvova-Belova, the Commissioner for Child's Rights. And And so the human rights infrastructure within the Russian government is really the federal leadership in in a very ironic, intentionally ironic twist. It is the human rights monitors that are leading this this program, which violates child rights. The third thing that Putin did is increase the amount of social security benefit for those who adopt Ukrainian children in Russia by $200 a month, which is a significant amount. And so it's created a financial incentive to adopt. That's what's happening at the Kremlin. Uh, When we go down to the regional level, we are looking at two important phenomena. One is that within Ukraine, in uh, particularly Donetsk and Luhansk, but also there is some evidence that this is occurring elsewhere, including Zaporizhia, Kherson, Kharkiv, when it was under occupation, that local teachers, and we identified some names of those teachers, but removed them from the report for their security, because we didn't want them to face reprisals from Ukrainians, that there's a local rec- 
recruitment element within Ukraine for these children to be moved to the camps or to temporary evacuation. The other element here that is happening within the regional level is this patronage program where, and we see this in Krasnodar as one example, where the, the mayor is funding the transfer with municipal money from the Krasnodar city budget. How many children do we know have been returned to their parents and families or are in the process of being returned? And what does this return process look like? Because surely there must be immense barriers to reunification that parents and legal guardians are having to navigate, uh, to say nothing of the reality of an active war in which this is taking place. The number that we have right now is in the hundreds, probably less than 400 returned primarily through the efforts of groups like Save Ukraine and Ukrainian civil society groups that are traveling into Russia to bring the kids from the re-education camps back. It is just, it's not even a percent of the amount of kids we're potentially talking about here. And it does not seem to include kids that were put into the fostering and adoption pipeline particularly those from the evacuee group, which includes disabled children in at least one case, if not more. And so um, let's talk about the journey that parents have had to make in the case of the returnees from the re-education camps. And this is a really important set of cultural details that listeners will really need to understand to fathom the horror and complexity of what has happened. So military-aged men cannot travel into Ukraine, uh, from Ukraine into Russia safely. They will not be allowed in. And so it means that it is the female family members, mostly mothers, but in some cases grandmothers, who have to travel in the case of just Crimea to get to these camps through Belarus or the Baltics in what are 70-hour journeys to go around the fighting and to enter Russia and then go south into Crimea on the Russian side. In the case of Siberia, it's days of travel. For female family members who are making this journey, there's the other issue that if they have other kids, there is usually very few people to watch them because the men are fighting. And so you have to look at the barriers to access um, to these children for those who can make the journey are financial, they're gendered, they are logistical, and they also relate to security. And there's a very poignant story captured in the report of a mother who goes to get her child from the camp, and another girl from their village is at that camp and sees um, that the mother of one of the other kids in the camp had come and was hoping it was her mother. The girl who was not collected by the woman from the village had a nervous breakdown and was moved to a mental facility. The mother who was able to collect the child went home to the village and told the mother of the child sent to the mental facility what had happened. That mother attempted then to figure out where her child was hospitalized and could not get information and could not access her and now doesn't know where she is. And so the, this story really speaks to the, the arbitrary 
nature of this program and also the fundamental war crime, that communications access for these kids to call home and to be able to communicate to their parents has been denied. Yes, reading that story uh, really brought it home for me. So thank you for touching on that. And you ended right there with something. My next question actually is, do parents actually have a means to communicate with their children? And it sounds like in most cases, that's not the case. Is that correct? In We have one instance of a, a boy named Sasha that has been documented by the Ukrainian government where he got a phone for two minutes from personnel at the camp and was able to call his grandmother. And his grandmother came and he went out a window. So the communication situation is an urgent, really critical aspect of the program. There has been quite a bit of commentary surrounding this issue as to what Russia's motivations for absconding with this number of children may be. Undoubtedly, this isn't a simple operation, as your report so granularly details. And many seem to believe that this is one aspect of a larger ethnic cleansing campaign being carried out in conjunction with the Russian war effort. As you were researching this issue, did your team find any evidence that could shine light on Russia's motivations and speak to whether or not these relocations are ethnically motivated? There really seems to be three motivations here. One is to rebrand the invasion as a humanitarian project that is about saving these children from purported Nazis. Uh, So it's really about communicating to a Russian audience, a public relations campaign. The second motivation appears to be this ethnic transformation campaign referred to as Russification of making Ukrainian children, usually from more pro-Russian, Russian-speaking areas, um, Russian culturally. The third uh, element here is in the most pernicious and concerning is these children now are leveraged in any future prisoner exchange discussions between Russia and the Ukrainians and any negotiations about a potential end of the war. In short, they are now bargaining chips in a very dangerous high-stakes game of poker. And that is most concerning. Looking down the road to what may lie ahead, it appears that the prospects for a swift end to the war seem pretty bleak. And if that's the case, then I have to assume and predict that this re-education and adoption program will continue and that children will continue to be transited about this network of political operatives, corrupt bureaucratic authorities and mercenaries. Does your team see any indications that would contradict this assumption and point towards this system eventually crumbling or being dismantled either through internal decision or external intervention? And... Are there things that the international community can and should be doing to see that it is? Well, the critical word here is registration. So this is unfortunately not the first scenario I've been involved in, in terms of children being taken in the course of war. And what is important here is, and I refer to it like emergency medical personnel refer to the first hour, the golden hour in complex trauma, which is right now we're in the golden hour. And in the golden hour with these types of situations, we need to get these kids registered as soon as possible. The adoption program on Russia's side involves the changing of names, the issuing of passports, and the signing of new social security numbers. The longer that Russia has these kids unregistered, the harder it will be to find them later. 
and I've been involved in child reunification efforts for children who were illegally put into the American adoption system out of Guatemala during the 1980s in the context of their civil war and actions against indigenous people. And that required decades to complete those reunions when it was possible. And it required DNA testing. And I don't want to see that happen here or anywhere. And so it is essential right now in Vienna, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe with some of our team members in attendance is wrapping up a first meeting to develop an OSCE-wide strategy on registration and return. There will be a European Union summit on this issue in Poland in the next few weeks, likely in May. The fact of the matter is the international community needs to move extremely quickly to develop with the Ukrainians the type of very complicated and extremely legally fraught uh, system of registration that requires multiple inputs from physical forensic identification, records management, and then just the data management of children who are returning and children who are reported missing. Uh, This is not a small undertaking. And we are not talking about a problem that even if the war ended today and Russia entered negotiations to return these children, we will be having from a humanitarian perspective um, and a logistical perspective to be managing this for years to come. Now, in a worst case scenario, which looks increasingly likely, um, we are talking decades to get these kids fully identified, uh, let alone returned. And I don't want to see them being reunited with their parents, some of whom may die, um, uh, pass away during this time frame when their parents are elderly and the kids who are now ages four months to 17 years by our research are in their 30s and 40s. I don't want to see that happen. But the, the issue is that right now, we do not have baseline numbers that we can trust across the four groups. We have more baseline in terms of the evacuees and the re-education camp kids, but we have no baseline in terms of estimating how many kids we're potentially talking about in the group that may have been taken from filtration and the group that was captured in terms of Russian combat operations. Registration is the only way we are going to begin to develop those baselines. And we are in, frankly, a race against time. Are there any other important takeaways, critical takeaways, uh, implications, advice that you would like to emphasize and highlight today? I think there's been a lot of cynicism, and I get this all the time, about the ICC indictments in this case. People say Putin's never going to get arrested. Maria Lvova-Belova is never going to get arrested. And so why does it matter? What I want to really emphasize here, drawing on the work of my colleague, Catherine Sickink at Harvard, who in her books, The uh, Reason for Hope and the Justice Cascade, shows that international and domestic, particularly domestic prosecution for war crimes and gross violations has a prophylactic, uh, quantifiable preventative effect on uh, future abuses occurring. And so what I want to state here at the end is the good news. The ICC's rapid action to charge, and I think it was a very conservative charging by Kareem Khan, and I mean that in a good way, uh, he did not charge the crime against humanity, 
uh, transfer uh, of one group for another for purposes of removing or changing national or uh, ethnic identity. He in his team charged the clear lower crimes, the war crimes, still very serious, of uh, forced deportation, forced transfer. And he, and by doing that, they have done two things that matter, even if Vladimir Putin and Maria Lvova Belova never face justice. Thing one is they've drawn a line in the dirt here, saying to the international community, particularly those nations who have not condemned Russia, that there is a side here. There's the side of international law and norms, and then they're standing with Russia who are literally taking children from their parents. And so that is important, regardless of what happens next. And the second thing that's important is that there has been a precedent set in this case, which is the single largest child theft that we know about since the uh, taking of Jewish children by the Nazis in World War II, which was the first crime at Nuremberg, clearly holding a head of state accountable for that. And that precedent matters. Executive Director Raymond, I know that I speak for myself, uh, for all my colleagues at Georgetown, and frankly, I'm sure for everyone, when I say thank you to the Humanitarian Research Lab at Yale University for the incredibly important work you have done here to investigate and reveal the depth of Russian efforts to relocate, uh, frankly, steal Ukrainian children throughout this war, and for bringing greater attention to an issue that has unfortunately received less than acceptable coverage and discussion. Our hope with this podcast, much the same as your lab's work, was to help illuminate this issue for others to spur action that would lead to the return and reunification of all children currently living in the system. So thank you again for being on today and for sharing with us. Thank you for telling the story. As a reminder, the views expressed on this podcast are the views of the participants alone and do not represent the views or opinions of Georgetown University, the Precision Guided Podcast, or any other agency. Thank you for listening to the Precision Guided Podcast. Follow the Georgetown Security Studies Review on social media to stay up to date on the latest Precision Guided Podcast episodes and GSSR content. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Or you can visit our website at georgetownsecuritystudiesreview.org. Thank you to all our listeners out there. This is a Precision Guided Podcast, the official podcast of the Georgetown Security Studies Review.